Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, with a message titled, Great Tribulation. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 24, verses 15 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are moments in human history when after, you know, we've passed through them, well, then we come to realize the moment became a defining point in the world. I mean, obviously, the horrors of the Second World War and of the Holocaust against the Jewish people was a moment in the 20th century that should not and must not be forgotten. The Second World War is a reminder that the secular myth that evil is no more than a social construct and the product of improper child raising That's simply wrong. Evil is not a social construct or a matter of perspective. A failure to acknowledge evil and to fight against evil is in itself an evil thing. For everyone who says, look, there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's just my truth versus your truth. I mean, the very ones that argue that need to come to terms with the Holocaust. Will they really gaze at such carnage and say, You know, how you interpret that is simply a matter of your truth versus my truth. If that's what's said, then all those men and women died for nothing. But the point I'm making is that there are times when an event in history brings great clarity. And if the lessons brought by the clarity are forgotten, we are not only horribly impoverished, but we're also destined to descend into the same evil as before. There was a time period from A.D. 66 to 73 the time the Jewish historian Josephus called the Jewish war that simply must not be forgotten. But before we get into that, let's refresh ourselves of our study. At the end of Tuesday of Passion Week, that is the week that Jesus was crucified, remember he was crucified on Friday, but on that Tuesday, as the day was coming to an end, he sat on the Mount of Olives directly opposite the temple in Jerusalem. He told his disciples that the massive stones that made up the temple would soon be thrown down. Not one would be left on another. In astonishment, his disciples asked him what would be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. You see, in their minds, they couldn't imagine that if such an astonishing thing were to happen, that this would not mark the end of the age and of the judgment of God. When will this be, they asked. You know, often people will criticize the disciples for wanting to know what the future would bring or for wanting to know when the end of the age was coming. I think it a mark to be a man or woman of faith, that, that they should inquire about the day when God brings to an end the day of evil and rebellion. We long for the, the coming of the kingdom. When will this be? Can be a question of longing for and hungering after, you know, the revelation of God and of his reign of righteousness. Jesus said that it's a mark of blessedness that we should hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so Jesus began to answer his disciples' question. He begins by saying that they ought not to be upset if wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and open hostility to the followers of Jesus lies in the future. These, he said, are but a beginning of the birth pains. The end is still to come. Don't overreact. Don't assume when events of great upheaval happen that the end must be upon us. That, by the way, sounds like great counsel. But now having laid down that basic premise, that great upheaval in the world does not necessarily signal the end of the age, Jesus goes beyond that to speak of something quite specific. 
So I'm reading Matthew 24, 15 to 21. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, it never will be. I need to admit at the very outset that there's been a a good bit of disagreement among Christians as to what Jesus meant here. But let's leave that disagreement for later and concentrate on what we actually know. In a sense, Matthew 24, 14 serves as a kind of bridge between the previous passage and this one. In verse 14, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so, while he said that great upheaval is not a sign of the end of the age, he did say that when the gospel had been preached to all nations or all cultural people groups, that would be a sign that the end will come. Now, having spoken of an ongoing upheaval in the world, leading to the gospel being preached to all people groups, Jesus seems now to be speaking of something that's quite specific. No more general references of wars and rumors of wars or of persecution and some people falling away from the faith. We all know that in the 2,000 years since Jesus had said this, that this is what had occurred. But there are still in our world today some people groups that have not had either the Bible in their own language or a church among their people. Now, I don't think it's possible to ascertain exactly how precisely we should understand Jesus' words. Nor would I argue that we know at any point in time when the challenge of gospel proclamation has been completed. But we know for certain that it must be done and then the end will come. Now, having said that, Jesus now speaks of something that's less vague. He speaks of something called the abomination that causes desolation. Unless we be unclear of what he's referring to, he clarifies it for his disciples. He said that the abomination that causes desolation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And as Matthew, who's recording Jesus' words for us, breaks into the narrative with a little helpful note to anyone who's reading his gospel. You'll see it there in the end of verse 15. Our translators, in order to help us, put Matthew's words in brackets. Let the reader understand. Matthew is telling us who read this, you know, many years later, that please, dear reader, don't pass over this matter too quickly. Let the reader understand. Let the reader do the study that's required so that he or she can accurately identify what Jesus is talking about. Well, since Matthew, who wrote this text for us, is pleading with us to understand what Daniel said, let's do exactly what he asks, shall we? Now, the expression, the abomination that causes desolation, is found four times in the book of Daniel. And of those four references, I think the clearest of the four is found in Daniel 11, verse 31. It says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering." and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, obviously, as I've read that, it should be apparent that I've picked up a sentence, you know, in the middle of an extended teaching. Daniel 11 is an extensive chapter in the book of Daniel. It it describes events as they will occur to the Greek empire, 
and how that will in the future impact the people of Israel. See, Daniel's been shown what will happen in days to come. The Babylonian Empire is going to fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Medo-Persian Empire is going to fall to the Greeks. The Greek king will die early. This was a reference to the future rise of Alexander the Great. And following Alexander, his empire would, according to Daniel, be divided into four different districts, each with their own king. And that's what the drama of the 11th chapter of Daniel teaches us. There will be, says Daniel, a king of the south and a king of the north. Now, we now know from history that it must refer to the kings in the south, you know, being the Egyptian part of the Greek empire under the leadership of the Ptolemies. Cleopatra was the last of that line. And in the north, it represents the Syrian part of that empire under the leadership of the Seleucids. And as one reads through the chapter, one becomes familiar with one very cruel king from the north. From history, we know who that man was. His name was Antiochus. Forces from him, from Antiochus, will appear, says Daniel, and they will profane the temple and the fortress. Now, the events that Daniel predicted, you know, in the 500s BC were actually fulfilled in the year 167 BC. Antiochus, in order to destroy Jerusalem, decided to desecrate the Jewish temple. And so he erected an altar of Zeus over the altar and burned offerings on it and sacrificed a pig on top of it. He made the practicing of Judaism a crime to be punished by death. He made it illegal for Jewish boys to be circumcised. He made it illegal to celebrate the Sabbath. He attempted to confiscate every copy of the Jewish Bible and burn it. Had he succeeded, he would have ended all memory of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, and the hope of the Messiah. What Antiochus will do in Jerusalem, said Daniel, will be an abomination that causes desolation. In other words, it would be an outrage so great that desolation comes. Now, that's the part that Matthew wants us to understand. Okay, that's the background. The disciples will want to know when will be the time of the coming of the Christ and of the end of the age. And Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place, then run out of Jerusalem as fast as you can. Now, we need to ask, what's Jesus referring to? Is it something that's still to happen or did it happen already? The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like no other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may have actually happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023, and consider the optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Join us in the Holy Land with on-location teaching from Dr. John Newfeld and wonderful evenings of entertainment with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When we began today's study, you'll remember, I began by making reference to the War of the Jews. 
It was a war in which Jewish freedom fighters fought against the Roman Empire, and that war lasted from AD 66 to 73. The outcome of that war was that Israel as a nation was driven from the promised land and didn't reclaim their land until the year 1948. That's quite a story in and of itself. But let's get back to AD 66 to 73. In that time, it had been 30 years since Jesus had been raised from the dead and had ascended to heaven. The church of Jesus had begun. The good news of the gospel was now being preached in the world. Paul and others were planting churches everywhere. Matthew had brought the gospel to India. Paul and Peter had already been executed. At this time, the Roman military might descended on Jerusalem and great fighting, including a siege, was begun. The Roman military standards were an eagle over the statue of the emperor. The soldiers paid homage to that statue. Indeed, they were required to worship the emperor. This was a great heresy to the Jews who worshiped God alone. It was an outrage. It was an abomination. And the Jewish historian, a man by the name of Josephus, recounted what actually occurred. He speaks of savagery, of wanton slaughter of the Romans upon all the cities of Jerusalem. The famine in the city before the Romans finally broke through the walls had become so severe that there were cases of mothers eating their own children. It was an abomination bringing desolation in every way. When the Romans finally entered the city, and the year was AD 70, because of the barbarism and savagery, the temple was lit on fire, it was burned. In order to retrieve any gold that might have gone missing in the fire, the Romans broke down that beautiful temple stone upon stone, and they dragged the stones away so that it could never even be seen there was a temple there. Now here, we do well to remember the words that Jesus spoke back in verse 2. You see all these, do you not, he asked. He's referring to the beautiful stones of the temple. He then said, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that prophecy was literally fulfilled in A.D. 70, 37 years after Jesus said it. Let's get back to today's text. In verse 15, Jesus says, When you see these events taking place, then those who are left in Judea flee to the mountains. According to a man named Eusebius, he's a Christian historian, the Romans at the beginning of the siege allowed anyone who wanted to leave the city to go. And Christians at that time who were living in Jerusalem remembered the words of Jesus and actually fled the city and saved their lives. Apparently, they fled to the same mountain caves that the Maccabeans had fled to during the time of Antiochus. So it really is quite remarkable that two events were so eerily similar. And Jesus was telling his disciples that a second abomination that causes desolation was about to occur, and it did, just as Jesus predicted. And furthermore, anyone who took Jesus' words seriously actually did save their lives. Now notice, when Jesus is telling of these events to come, he says, flee to the mountains. See, in verse 17, the one on the housetop is not to go down and take what's in his house. And the one who is working outside the city, working in a field, it says, don't go back to Jerusalem, just run. If the flight that was required were to happen in winter, I mean, obviously, winter conditions are harsh. If the day of fleeing were to occur on the Sabbath, well, in that case, there would be few people available to help you. That's to say, Jesus clearly expected all this to happen when there were observable Sabbath laws still in effect in Israel. Now then, we're not quite through. Notice the words of verse 21. 
For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Now, if we're careful, we'll learn a great deal about what Jesus meant and what would be the signs at the end of the age. When the abomination that causes desolation happens a second time, there will be, says Jesus, a great tribulation. Now, for those of us who are accustomed only to thinking about the great tribulation at the end of the age, right before the second coming, well, we might very quickly conclude that Jesus must have been talking about the last seven years before he returns during the reign of the Antichrist. I don't think that's what he's speaking about here. Tribulation, the Greek word, is the word thlipsis. It means great suffering. And so to put the word great before the word tribulation means unprecedented suffering. Indeed, in order to describe it, Jesus said the suffering, that unprecedented suffering of the Jewish people in those days will be so great that no suffering had been that great since the beginning of the world or ever would be again. Now, those are quite the words. Again, Josephus, who was the eyewitness of those events, described them in the War of the Jews. And here's what he said. No exhortation or threat could now restrain the impetuosity of the legions, for passion was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled down by their companions. Others, stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticos, died as miserably as the defeated. As they drew closer to the temple, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The rebels were powerless to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heaps of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. Now, we might read about this wanton savagery and say, well, yeah, that sounds terrible, but Jesus didn't know about the Jewish Holocaust, and that was surely worse. And of course, in terms of sheer numbers, that is truly the case. But D.A. Carson comments, and here I quote, never so high a percentage of a great city's population has been so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Listen, in proportional terms. This is the greatest butchery in human history. It's incredible. Now then, notice Jesus added, and never to be equaled again. That is to say, what happened here is a singular moment in human history. Now, from our vantage point, that is, from the vantage point of Christians today, we might observe several things. First, Jesus warned about this. Matthew 23, 37 to 38, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to him. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Or we might think of Jesus' words to the woman at the well in Samaria. John 4, 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, I like to point out to people who join me in the Israel experience that the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount today is a fulfillment of Jesus' curse on the temple, that the temple was destroyed and the door was closed to worshiping in Jerusalem. Do you remember what I said, that there are moments in history that are so overwhelming, they become a lesson book for all time? And such is the case of AD 70. After those events, the sacrifices in the temple ceased, and the only sacrifice left was the one sacrifice of Jesus for all time. 
And although we must weep with our Jewish friends that so great a suffering was rained down upon them, we're also reminded that Jesus himself declared that these events would happen and how anyone who listened to his voice might save his life at that time. But saying that doesn't take away, you know, from the awful memory of the greatest moment in the long story of the suffering of the Jewish people. Let us as Christian people always commit ourselves when we think of the suffering of the Jews to declare that it's our desire to seek, to understand, and to declare ourselves as friends of Israel. But it's at this time that you, my dear listener, might be asking yourself an important question. If it is the case that the events described in Matthew 24, 15 to 21 are about something that happened in AD 70, what relevance do those events have to the coming of our Lord and of the end of the age? And my answer is much in every way. When Jerusalem was destroyed, Jerusalem ceased to be the center of the Christian church, and the church was forced to go global. And when sacrifices ceased, we were forced to consider that the one sacrifice of Jesus left no need for temple sacrifices, and there's more. If we were to ask what these events mean for the future, some Bible scholars have argued that at the end of history, there will be one more abomination that causes desolation. Well, I'll leave that argument to another time. But if there's one thing that we must take from this, is that when Jesus speaks about the future, whatever he says is to be trusted. He's not a false prophet. And so we can trust that when Jesus predicted the end of the age, it will come as he said. But we can also say that Jesus had a purpose for the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. That event forced the church to go global. It forced the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth so that the end of the age might come. Thanks so much, John. You know, I'm wondering here, is it possible to look at the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem and come away encouraged as a Christian? Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I think we should. I mean, the first thing is to say, you know, it, it, you know, we know that people have put that dome on there who do not follow Christ as Savior and Lord. We know that. However, we also know that the Dome of the Rock makes it impossible to build a temple, at least for now. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And, and so since Jesus said it, he proves himself to be a true prophet, and the dome has made it impossible to build, at least for now. So that's the word. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We never get tired of hearing how listeners are impacted by the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. It's always such an honor when you take the time to let us know the ways you've been encouraged. One Back to the Bible Canada listener recently wrote, I'm grateful for your encouraging and truthful teaching of God's Word. May God continue to richly bless this ministry. Susan, a listener of Laugh Again with Phil Calloway wrote, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are so many days in which I need a boost of encouragement and an uplifting perspective on life. I love the way you approach each day with a smile. Thanks for making me laugh. If you'd like to share with us your spiritual journey and how it's been impacted through these ministries, don't hesitate to do so. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.ca.